This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 79 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Joining us today is Nicholas Cairns. He's the director of Aegis 9 Security Intelligence, a cybersecurity firm located in Canberra, Australia. In his career, Nicholas has worked in both offensive and defensive cybersecurity operations, threat intelligence, malware analysis, digital forensics and incident response, as well as threat and risk assessment. He shares with us his experience building a career in security, transitioning from the military to the private sector, having a hand in Australia's first intelligence collection system, and working as a pen tester. Through all of it, his career has been marked by a strong work ethic and desire to keep learning, to keep improving, and to put in the extra time and effort. We'll hear his thoughts on threat intelligence, specifically how organizations can best manage the growing volume of available information, and how to best transform that information into actionable intelligence. Stay with us. Uh, I listed in the military when I was around 17 years old. I joined what we used to call the colloquial name is a geek. So it was the, the ECN when you joined the military to do all the signals. So the networking, the servers, the connections, the deployable system. So when you go into the field, overseas operations, you are the guy or the team that created the, the network and make sure it was up and running for the commander. I did that for about 12 years uh, before I uh, left the military. Uh, I was at the Defence Force School of Signals, so where all the Navy, Army, Air Force, information technology recruits from all the different disciplines go to learn and train. Um, I was a teacher down there. While I was in the military, I thought I really enjoyed security. Security wasn't a big thing back then. Um, so in my journey being in the military, I started doing my extracurricular training, you know, like SANS courses, you know, Linux courses, you know, Windows fundamental courses, like the low-level stuff, um, to build myself up to when I was going to leave the military to then, you know, become a security expert. After uh, leaving the military, I joined a security intelligence company. My main two roles was pen testing um, and intelligence uh, collection and operations. One of the main things I did when I was there was I built Australia's first deployable tactical intelligence targeting collection system. So what it does is you know you deploy this box into the field, um, and then you do your tactical and operational intelligence. You know, it could be an FOB, it could be um, anywhere in the world, and that data does get sent back to the strategic network. So I was the, the guy, the dude that designed the system, or not designed the system, so built the system from the design and then implemented the training. So I taught uh, military individuals in intelligence disciplines how to um, track, target, and collect uh, information using certain products and systems and then collate their data together to provide actual intelligence to their leadership. And then from then, that company had some issues, as some do, and then I left and moved on from that and um, focused more on offensive security, like penetration testing, and also open source intelligence. So I kind of blended those two disciplines together. That's kind of where I am at now in my, in my, in my own business. Is I, it's, it's security intelligence, so it's a, a blend of both 
the intelligence discipline and also the security function. For most, most of the companies from then on, I was doing the same function, except uh, in my last role, I was the uh, head of threat intelligence for a, a SOC or an MSSP. I kind of leveraged those disciplines of the offensive security and then reverse them around to then become on the defender side and understand how, you know, nation state groups, activists and all those kind of malicious threats uh, get into networks, get into companies, get into systems and then um, exploit them. And so then we flip that around and then to, to better defend against them. Yeah, I'd like to dig into some of the specifics of some of the things that you've specialized in. Can we start with penetration testing? I mean, what was the what was the process by which you acquired the skills to be effective doing that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, there's lots of people's opinions on penetration testing, how it works, you know, what's the process of getting there. Um, and I found that, you know, one of my main goals or personal things in my life is continual learning. So when I was in the military, um, they didn't teach, you know, Linux fundamentals, Linux, you know, kernel, Linux networking, all that kind of stuff. So I had to learn that off my own back. Once I had a good base um, of understanding of how the Linux operating system worked, how the in, how, how programs work, you know, compared to how Windows operating systems work, then I built on that and then went into the offensive side because a lot of tools and processes and flow processes within penetration testing are built on the Linux operating system. So once I did that, I did all my, you know, my, my uh, SANS courses, other courses to build me up in certain areas that I wasn't, would say, fully competent in. And then once I got to that level, um, then I just started, you know, doing deep dive, you know, Python programming, um, Bash shell scripting, and using a lot of open source tools um, and a few paid tools to kind of get me to the base where I needed to be. And then once I was there, you know, you always continual learning. So when a new course comes out, um, when a new training opportunity comes out, always be the first one to put your hand up and get on that. So then you're always at the forefront of um, technology. And especially within penetration testing, it's such an, or, you know, offensive hacking assurance methods. It's, it's always evolving. It's always changing. People are bringing new tools, new tactics, um, new pieces of malware, new APT findings come out. You know, then pen testers use those findings to then pen test their client networks to have a better result for the client. Yeah, I'm curious uh, what your take is on, on how much your own creativity comes into play when you're doing penetration testing. I, I would imagine, you know, like you say, that taking courses was very important to you, keeping on the cutting edge of, of the latest technology and the latest techniques. But at some point, uh, it's up to you to assemble those things and apply them in a creative way. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's so many different tools, processes, and things you can use to do your job. But it comes down to you and how you use those tools to create an outcome. And I found in my security career, you know, it's nearly nearly 18 years now, is that you really need to have a good process flow and execution. So I have a good basis of the OODA loop. So that's an intelligence kind of uh, discipline and framework to, you know, find, track, and then execute um, actions. And especially within penetration testing, you need to have like this continual loop of operations and a process flow in which you do it. And even though you might come across, you know, outliers or pieces of information when, you, when you're doing a penetration test that aren't normal, as long as you continually adapt and pivot on those pieces of information to get the outcome. I find that 
there's a lot of junior uh, people coming into this field that say, you know, I want to be an offensive hacker. I want to be a pen tester. I'm just going to run a few tools and then I'm going to get an outcome and they're going to be hacked. Well, that's not actually how it works. It's a complete um, process that you kind of have to iteratively go through. And then if something comes up, then you pivot on that and you process it and you move on. So I would say it's, uh, it's through experience um, and through dedication is that you get a complete process going. Yeah, and I suppose a lot of that experience in- informs that you have a sense for what not to do. Exactly right. And there's lots of things now not to do, especially within different corporate environments, um, governments. But when you create your rules of engagement that allows you to enact your assurance methods on that client, there's, there might be a different caveats. So one client might say, you know, you can you know, attempt to get shell on every single box you try and attack. And there's some, some clients say, if you can identify the shell and you can do a proof of concept on a test box, then we'll approve that as possibly exploitable and then we'll patch that or we'll um, implement your recommendation. So it's all really client specific. It's not like the Wild West where you could go online and kind of use like auto-exploit and then like pop all these shells and um, different boxes from a showdown search. It's not that in real life. You actually have to take the client's needs into consideration and then uh, execute your penetration test and flow based off those client uh, needs as well. I suppose also, I mean, you must have your own uh, sort of overarching set of ethics that you come at these things with as well. Yeah, that's right. After so long in security, um, and me now, I'm near on 40 and, you know, got four kids, I've kind of have this kind of like humble experience and uh, mentality to my work. So it's not about, you know, finding the coolest exploit and exploiting as most boxes you can. It's about doing the best for the customer and the best for the client and what what helps them the most and what will better protect them against an adversary trying to infiltrate their system. And you need to, as a pen tester, you need to emulate the adversary and to find all the ways in it. And the better you can understand the adversary and the client, the better the outcome is. Can you take us through uh, when you're doing open source intelligent assessments, what do those engagements look like? Yeah, that's, that's a pretty interesting one. Um, I'll do a few of them. And especially um, in the in the current environment, is there's lots of data, so much data online that people don't understand how much information gets put online. Like I don't have my I don't have my own Facebook account because I understand um, the tools and the techniques that malicious attackers use to exploit that data. And for for example, a, a open source intelligence investigation on a client or a person in our industry goes through lots of processes and flows. The main one is you know you're targeting, so you target your malicious adversary, you understand who they are, what they're doing, why they're doing it. Once you under, once you've understand their basis and kind of put yourself in their shoes, the next step is to kind of be precise and be un, be understanding and be clear on what they want and what the client wants and kind of mesh them two together. And once you've done that, then you need to use the, the tools and techniques which you've created to kind of collect their data and push all that data into like an aggregate system. So something like, you know, I2 or Multigo that puts all the data in one point. Then you can kind of pass through it, clean it up, and understand where the client is, not the client or the person you're targeting is, and what they're looking for. So, for example, I was doing an investigation on the the trafficking of um, illicit drugs, mainly fentanyl and carfentanyl, out of um, Hong Kong um, and China into the UK. And once I started to scratch the surface, 
you start to see that there are these really overt organizations that kind of inter- interlink together by multiple aliases, multiple email addresses, and they've got this massive ring of fentanyl being um, exported from China into the UK. And they're like, why? How can we stop this? And once you start tying that together, so you've got, for example, 15 different organizations tied together by one alias or one email address, and um, you need to kind of find the correlative evidence that ties packages coming in to the country with addresses back to locations, which then can be properly um, prevented from coming to the into the country. So it's like it's really complex, and it really depends on um, the customer and what the outcome is. You know, in that case, for example, the outcome was to f- provide um, an overall understanding of how fentanyl gets sold online, how it gets trafficked, like what are the main players, kind of what is the communication method. And in, in, in that investigation, it was like Wicker and Skype and WhatsApp were the main communication methods between sellers and buyers. And then what can we do about it? So we've got all this data of these organizations. How do we block that? So, for example, there was something like 37 different um, organizations you know, selling fentanyl in big quantities, you know, producing like 500 kilos a week in the one street in China, like in this one province. So, you know, when fentanyl comes into the UK, for example, from this specific industrial area, we want to flag that data or flag that uh, those packages um, from coming into the country and then do further investigation on that because if you, not many people understand fentanyl, but if you do, like one gram of fentanyl, is like 40 doses. So you're trying to track one tiny gram of fentanyl in the mail is like, you know, a needle in a haystack. But then if you tie the open source intelligence and back down to, okay, this is in this one province, how about we target that? And then can I filter packages coming into the country from there? And it's easier to block that threat. Now, in the work that you do when it comes to tracking these open source intelligence uh, items. Is it true that um, most people think that they're being more stealthy than they actually are? Well, most people think that they they're like an internet sleuth. So they they put their data online and you know, they they tick the privacy settings and then they're safe. But that's not really it. There's lots of really smart people out there that make smart programs that you know extract the data from behind the scenes. And it's all about you know what I've found is especially with because I've created multiple open source intelligence training courses before and I've taught this before to the military and to the private sector is that to be able to understand where your data is going or to collect data on an individual organization, et cetera, is you have to understand the framework behind how that data is getting presented. So, for example, if you say that, you know, I have a Facebook account, but it's locked down and I'm safe or I have a Twitter or I have a a Wicker account, or I have whatever online presence account it is, is that if you understand the the framework or the architecture of the system behind it, then you can pull the data out. So, for example, um, I work closely with a company that um, provides, um, creates tools and, you know, scripts and programs to kind of extract this behind-the-scenes data on Facebook and, like, correlates people together, organizations, posts, um, likes in kind of like a kind of like a multigo format analyst experience. So you can say, okay, these people are tied together by this person. They're tied together by this location, and that kind of stuff. On the scenes of it, when you lock down your Facebook account, you know you think you're safe, but you're not actually safe. So 
the best the best way to be safe online and to not have your information exposed is just to don't do it in the first place because there's so many people you know there's a guy um his name's justin seats he's a big python programmer and he's an open source guy and he created a, a program called hunchly that kind of like you know scrapes and collects data um while you're, you're processing your investigation online and it kind of puts it in a database and then so for example you know you might have your online account on one day and then you take it down but then that data is collected somewhere online and could you know potentially be used against you one day so if you just if you don't want to be found out or you don't want any information to be found out about you just don't, don't put it online yeah easier said than done right especially these days i suppose yeah exactly right and, you know and there's all these you know exposures and dumps and hacks going around so you know like you, you think your information might be private you know, it might not even have an online presence. You might say my online presence is zero, but then I've got all this data, what we call um, in the deep web. So that's like the data behind, you know, the password protected logins, the, the data behind, you know, systems that shouldn't even be online. That's like the deep web. And when organizations or companies get exposed or breached that are running their systems online or in AWS or in buckets or in, you know, droplets, all that kind of stuff. When that stuff pops out, you might not have an online presence, but now you do because your email address, your phone number has been exposed online. And then, you know, things flow on from that. Right. Now, I want to uh, talk some about uh, threat intelligence, which is certainly an area of your expertise. Can you describe to us, I mean, what part do you think threat intelligence plays in organizations trying to defend themselves? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, it's kind of like my love affair with with security is, you know, threat intelligence and, and threat hunting is like one thing. I find like for myself personally that threat intelligence means understanding your adversary, their um, tactics, their operational, um, the modus operandi, what they do, how they do it, and then turning that into a defensive context. So completely understand your enemy, being in their shoes, their viewpoint, you know, their geopolitical context, their domestic political context, their kind of international relations context, and then what tools and techniques they use to breach organizations, you know, all the different APTs, all the different hacktivists, all those kind of things. And then you then enact those tools and techniques in your own environments to better understand them. And then you flip that on its, on its end and say, okay, these are how they're getting in. How about we detect that? How about we write processes, you know, rules, um, products to better detect these threats. Yeah, so it's a full circle. It's definitely a full circle thing. And it's not about, you know, back in the day when, you know, threat intelligence, quote unquote, was the, the thing to do and the new evolving thing was about like the technical indicators. So like the hashes and the IPs and that. Well, it's really not that about that anymore because, you know, things in technology change so much that you can't count on those things. You have to kind of count on the, the processes. So how, for example, and a group or an APT is conducting operations on a large scale. So like what types of infrastructure are they deploying or redeploying and using to on their operations, you know, and then from then on down to a lower level is like, what are the tactical things? So when they're, you know, their malware or their offensive, offensive operations are being enacted, like what are the processes they do? So when they drop something on a disc, what does it usually look like? Or when, a piece of malware gets executed in memory, you know, if it's not going to touch disk, you know, what's the process execution? What's the files it's calling? What's the files it's reading? You know, who's it calling back to? All that kind of stuff kind of builds 
the context of the intelligence and then you can better prevent against it. You know, I find as well within big um, organizations and governments is that they focus a lot on the tactical. So the, as I just talked about the tactical stuff of threat intelligence, but they, you know, they don't tie it back to the strategic. So they're like, okay, we understand that this APD is, APT is operating like this. They're using these tactics, but they don't tie it back to the strategic. So why is this actor doing its thing? You know, for example, China. Why is these Chinese APTs doing, you know, these offensive operations against these different clients or governments? You know, have the, have you looked at the Chinese current five-year plan? You know, have you have a look? Have you looked at, you know, the DPRK and the relationship with China? You know, when they're sending their um, new IET recruits to China to come back to North Korea to be trained. Why are they doing that? You know, what's the relationship between China and North Korea? And then you can better understand the context of the actor as a whole, not just at the lowest level. What's your advice for organizations in terms of uh, getting a handle on uh, this fire hose of information? How, how do you make the threat intelligence feeds manageable, but then also actionable? Yeah, that, that's a good that's a good one as well. You know, there's so many different intelligence feeds out there at the moment that you can kind of get overwhelmed with data and you don't know what's good data and what's bad data. And I found in my experience is that you need good people, one. So the first thing is you need good people that understand the technologies that are being utilized. And the second thing is to have a system that pulls in the data, aggregates it, um, dedupes it, correlates it, and then puts it in, in a way that your system can handle. So, for example, some systems might use an orchestration system. So you pull in 300 different threat feeds, but then you want to only orchestrate in, in the, you know, enrich certain pieces of information that comes in. So if it relates to um, a vulnerability or a system or an application that you're running, then you want to enrich those indicators, you know, use orchestration tools to kind of pull in these different components in and then um, amplify that data and send it out to your customers. So it's really about kind of aggregating the, the, the fire hose of the internet of, of indicators and, and tactics and then bring it all together. And, Especially once you've once you've done that, you know you've got your SOC, you've got your SIM, or you've, you're outsourcing that kind of data to someone else. Then it's about getting the right people in to kind of understand how threat actors do their thing, and then you know write you know specific rules, detection programs, and use cases that can defend against that. Because all that data that comes in is kind of based off one sort of technique or operation specifically. So, um, for example. You know, out of those 300 million, you know, thousand indicators that come in per day into your system, you know, a lot of those indicators have uh, the same, you know, tactical presence on disk, on in memory, and you just got to have the team that can go through that data and understand it. Our thanks to Nicholas Cairns from A9 Security Intelligence for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Futures Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. 
The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by Pratt Street Media with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.